First up, just a warning. This episode of How to Change a Life covers topics that could be distressing. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Now, here's How to Change a Life. I didn't really know what to do with myself and on some visits back home with my aunties and stuff, they really pushed me into psychology because they thought it would be good for the community. There's a lot of mental illness in my family. My dad committed suicide, my dad's brother committed suicide. There's a lot of it where I'm from. So, you know, I really wanted to have something that I could give back. Every single thing she learned, she had to work hard to learn. And I never once saw that little girl give up. So how could I possibly give up? Finding our purpose. We're told it's the only way to make sense of our time in this universe by everyone from Buddha to Oprah to endless social media inspiration posts. But what happens when you find that purpose, then the universe sideswipes you with a completely different purpose? I'm Mary Bolling, and this is CQ University's podcast, How to Change a Life. And this episode, how the decision to study psychology helps a young Indigenous woman overcome a tough start in life. And when the next curveball comes, it's staying true to her cultural values that makes all the difference. Hi, my name's Sam Coombs. I'm a Nunaku Kwanamuka woman from Minjeraba, North Stradbroke Island. My tribal name is Mirigimpa Nunaku, so that's the sea eagle. I'm doing a PhD at Central Queensland University, focusing on sharing Indigenous knowledges into the disability sector. As soon as you meet Sam or Zoom call her like I did, you get a sense that she's a person who knows who she is and what she values. But back in high school, Sam isn't so sure where she's headed. Luckily, that's what aunties are for. When I was in year 11 and 12, um, I moved to central Queensland from North Stradbroke Island, Minjeraba, which is my traditional homelands. Um, and I didn't really know what to do with myself. And on some visits back home with my aunties and stuff, they really pushed me into psychology because they thought it would be good for the community. I didn't really do year 11 and 12 very much. My dad got released from prison when I was in year 12. And he was incarcerated for crimes against my sisters. So that sort of really threw me out quite a lot, knowing that he was out and about. So I did an alternative entry through the School of Indigenous Engagement to get into an undergrad, which thank God I did. Uh, so, yeah, I studied and then worked hard and graduated with honours, which was really good. Back in 2006, at just 21 years old, Sam is among the first Indigenous students to graduate from CQ University's psychology course. In her final year, an honours year, she is also pregnant with her first child. That challenge makes her all the more determined to graduate. I never really wanted to have kids without having some sort of security to fall back on. Because I'd seen from where I came from, there's a lot of poverty and a lot of a lot of people struggled to get education and stuff. So I didn't want to throw that away. And I sort of I was committed to it and I thought that I could make a lot of change in my own community because of it. There's a lot of mental illness in my family. My dad committed suicide, my dad's brother committed suicide. You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of it in where I'm from. So, you know, I really wanted to have something that I could give back. Sam welcomes her son, then gets her career back on track, working in mental health. 
But as she works, and even back when she was studying, she's seeing more and more ways the mainstream health system is failing Indigenous communities and so many others. It's not geared towards caring for anyone that doesn't fit the status quo of of colonised society. I mean, if you're if you're a female, it doesn't work. If you're from an ethnic minority, it doesn't work well. It's not just Indigenous people. It's anyone that doesn't conform to the, the ideal perspective of what a human should be. And that includes, you know, people with disabilities. It's hard for them to access services and systems as well. So Sam's starting to see systemic problems and she's also witnessing racism. Once I graduated, I got a job and worked at Fidgety, which is the local Aboriginal healthcare service which was really good. And then I went to the Rockhampton-based mental health service and I, I enjoyed the work quite a lot, but there was a lot of racism and discrimination, especially at the hospital. And, you know, for myself being a fair-skinned Aboriginal person, I don't, people don't assume that I'm Aboriginal on first appearances. So I would hear a lot of conversations, particularly from management about Aboriginal people and a lot of it was really racist and discriminatory. And I was told constantly, like when I pulled people up, that, oh, but you're different. And from my perspective, the only thing that makes me different is that I don't have a dark skin colour. So it's just ignorance and it is across the board. All told, it's an emotional time. And Sam's juggling the challenging role with being a mum to her little boy. Then three years after he was born, her first daughter, Emily, arrives. When she was born, she was very sick and I didn't know what was going on with her. So um, I sort of quit my job as a psych- working towards being a psychologist and focused on my daughter for a lot of years. So that's been happening now for about 11 years. So she's been my primary focus. Emily is diagnosed with Down syndrome. And while Sam's career plans are on hold, her education and experience are all the more vital as she advocates for her little daughter. There have been times when it becomes quite obvious to me that if I hadn't had the education and the experience and I didn't look the way I did, things could be very different. Like, for instance, uh, probably about four years ago now, my daughter got very sick with pneumonia and she didn't look like she was sick. She looked completely normal and that often happens with children with down syndrome they don't they don't feel things and express things the way that you would expect them to so I had to have an argument with the head of the emergency department to get her a chest x-ray because they didn't think she had pneumonia so I had to really advocate for that to happen and it was very I was very mindful of this afterwards that if I hadn't been such a strong advocate she could quite easily get very she could have quite easily gotten very sick and I did, I did lodge a formal complaint at the time with the hospital about that and I got a, a, an apology from the head doctor. But it, it just it was, it's scary because you hear a lot of stories about kids with disabilities and the things that can happen. And it's, you know, the systems are there to help us. But in this instance, unless I was advocating, then it, she could have quite easily died. Knowing firsthand the battles that so many marginalised families are fighting in the health system, Sam is desperate to get back to the front line and to supporting them. But when work won't fit around caring responsibilities, the determined mum looks for other ways to help. Probably about five years ago, um, I tried to go back to work 
So working in a normal job, nine to five, that sort of stuff. And I couldn't manage it. I couldn't manage her therapy appointments, her medical appointments, and then having time off when she was sick and things like that. It, it was not possible, not with three kids and doing it by myself. So I thought, you know, I was getting bored. I wanted something that would challenge me. I decided I may as well study. <laughs> so I'd say Sam is underselling her decision a bit there. She reconnects with CQ Uni's Office of Indigenous Engagement and in 2017 actually secures a research scholarship to complete her five-year PhD. Her topic combines her two passions and so much lived experience as well. Well, the two things that I'm passionate about are Aboriginal culture and over the last 10 years I've become very passionate about disability advocacy as well. So they're the two things that I was very interested in and I started off thinking, oh, well, maybe I could do some research about Aboriginal disability. But it's quickly become, and I've learnt a lot from my elders back home and the aunties and uncles that talk to me about this, that it's not really about disability because disability is not seen as something separate. It's seen as part of human experience. It's part of human life. It happens. To, it can happen to all of us in, in a lot of different ways. So it's just, it's more become about reinvigorating our cultural processes and practices around how we care for each other. A lot of my mob from back home, they don't want to engage with systems and services and they're very passionate about the idea of sovereignty. Sam talks about decolonising the health system and all systems to stop them discriminating against Indigenous people and against other minorities. And if you don't think the health system is colonised, then Sam can explain why Indigenous people, after 200 years of trauma, can't afford to be so confident. The experiences of racism and discrimination in the services and systems is, is a real thing and it's it's very traumatic for a lot of people. And, you know, there's there's a lot of talk as well. It's like when you get child, children diagnosed with a disability, there's more um, attention on you. So... I don't have the luxury of having privacy in my home because I have carers coming through. So, you know, they have that they have that privileged position where they come into your home and they can cast judgment over how you live and how you run your household. Whereas that doesn't happen to people that don't have a disability. And given the, the history of racism and discrimination, would you really want strangers coming through your house that are going to cast judgment over your lifestyle? and then have to deal with the possible consequences of having your children removed. Dealing with all that trauma, though, her own and what she's seeing in her community, Sam is finding strength from her determined little girl. The biggest thing that's helped me is my daughter, Emily. You know, the the patience she taught me and the resilience. It's like so many people around us were like their kids were just doing things so easily do you know what I mean like they could they could get up and walk and they could sit up and they could feed themselves and they could ride bikes and they could run and jump and swing and all those things but Emily couldn't do any of those things so every single thing she learned she had to work hard to learn and I never once saw that little girl give up so how could I possibly give up do you know what I mean like I don't have to face half the things that she has to face And thanks to Emily, Sam's now seeing the potential for an inclusive world, one like the pre-colonisation experience of her Indigenous ancestors. We don't label people with disabilities. We just accept them as they are with their limitations, with their abilities, whatever that it may be. 
the safety that comes along with having a strong community as well. It's safe for a person with a disability, you know, when there is a strong, supportive community around them. I know it sounds like a utopian ideal, but these are things that happened. You know, this was a system that actually worked 200 years ago. It's only in the last 200 years that it hasn't been working. So it can be done. It has been done. As well as asking the community about their experiences, Sam is trying to understand the cultural traditions around disability. One story she's been handed by the elders is the story of Dimbuna. So a long, long time ago in the Dreaming, there was an old woman who was mute. Her name was Dimbuna. It was forbidden to any, for anyone to hurt her because of her disabilities. Now at this time, she was following the hunters always and they were unable to catch food. So the head man had her restrained to a rock. Two young men were asked to stay and look after her. Now some time had passed and a big storm came out of nowhere. The young men ran and took cover. When they returned, they had found that the rock Dimbuna was tied to had broken and fell into the sea. Dimbuna was still there. They tried to get to her with no avail. They tried to throw her food with no luck. Dimbuna slowly died on that rock, wailing and wailing till she passed. Now every time those same winds come, because of the blowhole, it gives off the eerie sound of her wailing. And the old people say it's the spirit of Dimbuna to remind us to always look after each other. If you're ever on North Stradbroke Island, you can get that reminder yourself. Whale Rock, as in Dimbuna Whaling, is at Point Lookout. And as Sam says, it's a reminder we could all use that we're all here to care for each other. That's the way we're raised, though. Like, Aboriginal culture is about caring. It's not just caring for our environment. A lot of people make that misconception. But it's also about caring for each other as custodians. So when one of us does well, all of us does do well. And if one of us is suffering, then all of us suffer. Our community is managed and included and we're accessible to all people from disabilities, old age, it doesn't matter. It was inclusive and accessible for all. There's a big push now to learn about Indigenous land management practices and things like that. But to be sustainable in the future, it's not just about taking bits and pieces. It's about creating a whole sustainable system. And part of that system is how we care and provide care. Making society accessible and inclusive. Um, so we need to have that conversation about how that's going to look. And I, I think learning about Indigenous knowledges around this hopefully will contribute to that conversation. Sam is in the final year of her PhD and sounding just a little bit stressed about impending deadlines. Her studies are on a tight schedule after all. They happen between the morning school run to her three kids, three different schools, and the afternoon loop back for pickup. The pandemic has also thrown things out, but Sam is using the challenge to her advantage. Before COVID, I had intended to do focus groups and interviews, but um, that quickly went pear-shaped when COVID hit, so I wasn't able to travel to my community. A lot of the Indigenous communities around Australia were locked in very quickly because of they were considered vulnerable to COVID. Um, so I had a lot of conversations with elders and community members about how I would go about having these conversations with people. And it came to the point where, well, maybe we should try Facebook and create a group that was just closed just for our community 
where I could write questions and people could inbox me privately or they could post and share. And it seems to be working really, really well. So at the moment it's got about 120 members and most people respond and like and share and it's working pretty well. It's a very different way to do data collection, but it seems to work well for our mob. Side note, Sam says that Indigenous communities actually have a higher rate of social media use than the whole of the Australian community. And especially in her life as a carer, Sam's been tapping into the power of social media for good. My daughter used to run away quite a lot and it was very scary, you know, so I'd be at home quite a lot with the doors locked and trying to keep her safe. So social media was a bit of a lifeline for me and there's a lot of support groups on social media for people with disabilities and for carers as well. So that it's a really great networking way to reach out when you can't access the community so much. Um, for Indigenous people, there's a lot of Facebook groups as well that are specifically designed for First Nations people to connect and reaffirm their identity and to have conversations and, and start political movements. So it's a really good fit for both of those reasons. Nowadays, though, Sam's community is so much more than virtual. As she chats to me from her mum's kitchen table, the busy house bustles around her. It's mum, mum's carer, her brother, her sister. They're all part of a vital support system. Honestly, I think a lot of support from friends and family that are really motivated to see me get through, I imagine, because being on a carer's pension is not the most luxurious lifestyle <laughs> And, you know, I can't, I can't work a nine-to-five job with my, my caring commitments. So I want to have a good paying job that can sort of work around my commitments. And my family is very supportive to help me get through that and my friends as well. It's a constant juggling act and I feel blessed. I mean, having all these people in my corner supporting me and helping me, I would not be able to do this on my own. Having a community that's prepared to care is one thing. But Sam's research, based on her own experience, also looks at whether individuals are prepared to accept and depend on care when they need it. And that also takes an attitude shift. When when I had Emily, I didn't understand disability really at all, you know, and I was very devastated and I locked myself in a bathroom at the hospital and cried and cried and cried. But when you're in the hospital situation, people tell you all these bad things to expect, like she's not going to be able to walk, she's not going to talk, she's not going to have a good quality of life, all that kind of stuff. But they don't know. They haven't lived with it. And I would not take it back to the world. She has taught me so much about myself and about the world. The way I think about it in sort of an academic term is that we are all programmed to have this individual success story. But when you become a carer or a person with a disability, that gets thrown out of the window really quickly and you're dependent on other people. So you are relying on that interconnected experience to help you get through. So like you may say that I'm amazing or whatever it is that you're thinking, but at the end of the day, I'm only as amazing as the people around me because I wouldn't be doing any of this stuff without the people in my life that have supported me to get here. That's Sam's research thesis, but it's also her advice for changing your own life and trying to change lives around you. Come at things from different ways, you know, try and solve the problem from unusual perspectives. Like if you don't like the situation or your life as it is now, 
try and look at it from different ways. Talk to people, you know, reach out and use that knowledge that lies in the relationships you have with other people because they could bounce back some really great perspectives to you. But I think never giving up. <laughs> I failed so many times. <laughs> That's the lesson I learned from my daughter, you know, is you just don't give up. That's Sam Coombs, mum, carer, PhD researcher and inspiring disability advocate. She's also part of CQ University's First Nations Research Higher Degree Academy, the first of its kind in Australia. For more information, visit cqu.edu.au slash rhd and follow the link to academies. And just a reminder, if this episode has raised any issues for you, Lifeline offers 24-hour crisis support call 131114. If you're a CQ University student, free counselling is available. Email counselling at cqu.edu.au or search counselling in the student portal for more contact details. And CQ University staff can access free health and wellbeing support through the Employee Assistance Program. You've been listening to How to Change a Life by CQ University Podcasts. Theme music is Wings by CQ University alumnus Tristan Barton. You can check out more of his work at tristanbarton.com. If How to Change a Life has got you thinking about where you're headed, we'd love to hear. Follow CQ University across social media where you can see highlights from all our episodes and subscribe to How to Change a Life wherever you get your podcasts to hear a new story fresh every Monday. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd love you to rate and review us too next episode, how the traumatic story of her own birth inspired a Nepali woman's career in midwifery and how she got out of the birthing suite in a bid to give new mothers more support. And what I remember and that it struck me the most is that when my dad took my mum to the hospital, he said to the midwives that, well, not really, ma'am, concern about the baby but I really need this mother to be alive because there are three young children at home. Till then stay safe and have a life-changing day.